Well, turn with me now in the book of Isaiah to Isaiah 52. We will be just for a moment in Isaiah 52 because then we will read on through Isaiah 53. Isaiah, of course, when he wrote his book, didn't put chapters or verses in. So he was unaware that today we would divide out verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 from verses 1 through 12. So we're going to put them back together. And we're going to read Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 12, down through 53, ending in verse 12. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had, no, had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Isaiah is preaching to a people who are about to go into exile. And it's his mission, first, to convince those people that they are going to suffer the judgment of God. They will be cursed and cut off from the presence of God. They will go into exile. It is his mission, secondly, to convince them that that is not the end of the story. Isaiah, while promising the judgment of God, will send them to Babylon, likewise promises them God will bring them back. Yes, as a people, he will kill them. But as a people, he will also resurrect them. And we have this extraordinary line in verse 12 of chapter 52. You shall not go out with haste nor by flight. Do you remember the exodus from Egypt? Do you remember how they went out? Do you remember that there was a whole Passover feast that was established to remind the people of God for every generation? You went up from Egypt in haste and you went in flight on eagles' wings. But God tells the people through Isaiah, this time it will be different. You will not go in haste and you will not go in flight. You will take your sweet time. Why? We get Isaiah 53. Because someone will be exiled into your place. Just as Moses revealed to you God's mighty triumph over the gods of this world, so Zerubbabel will reveal to you the suffering servant who will bear your curse, your condemnation for you. And you will go free. With this in mind, my friends, turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Our sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. This becomes the frightening moment for every preacher. This is the penultimate sermon. This series is almost over. Which means I need to make sure I can... End this. Denny Prucho, my preaching professor in seminary, observed the hardest part about the sermon is the landing. Just like pilots, just like flying. It's the landing that's the hardest part. How do you bring this to an end? How do you pull all this together? Well, this is our first and second to last attempt at bringing it all together. Acts chapter 28, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand... They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped from the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. 
But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was God. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul went in to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew And the next day we came to Putioli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Amen and amen. Well, my friends, we are coming to the end, the end of the book of Acts, the end of the year. We're beginning to tidy things up. Some of you begin to feel the pressure of the end of the year and begin to think, what have I done this year? And you start to look through your calendar and think, where did all the time go? How many of you woke up this morning and were wondering if it was August? Where did the time go? How many of you have encountered COVID time? In which you say to a friend, you remember last week? And they say, no, that was last year. And you're like, ah, what? Twelve months evaporated. The time goes and the time goes quickly. It's been long observed for young parents. The days are long, the years are short. Getting through the next 12 hours is very difficult for a parent with young children. Getting through the next 12 years will go by in the blink of an eye. I can actually say that. I have children over the age of 12. Friends, this is how life passes. With tumults and terrors, with troubles on every side, with sorrows and sins and suffering, and yet it's gone. And yet it goes swiftly. What then do we learn as the year passes What then do we learn as the sermon series comes to an end? Once more, Luke skillfully draws out for us a story of from the life of Paul. Not to teach us of the genius of Paul, but the genius of Jesus. And to remind us that we have a hope and a comfort that Jesus saves through suffering. That Jesus saves us through our sorrows. And so we need not be afraid. My friends, I ask you today to take comfort in this hope. Jesus saves through suffering. Do not be afraid. Look with me at this story this morning. Notice, first of all, 
that they are indeed saved. In verse 1, when they had escaped, they found out that they were on an island called Malta. This word escaped in the Greek is actually saved through or came safely through. It's not the escape that we often think of in our world where we escape from something. That is, we get away from it. We don't have to suffer the consequences of it. That's not the escape that Luke has in mind here. The ship is a floating wreckage. The grain on which their livelihood depended is feeding the fish at the bottom of the sea, and they don't pay as well as the Romans do. There is this hopelessness that has descended in their hearts where they have slowly stripped this boat, this vessel, away. They gave up its anchors. They gave up its sails. They gave up its tackle. They gave up its cargo. And at last, they gave up the ship itself. When these people escape, what Luke means is that they are lying on a sandy beach, soaked with salt water, freezing in the rain, huffing and puffing with exhaustion. They have their lives and their soaking wet clothes. That's what he means by escaped. But he also means that they arrive at the island of Malta. This is a sweet place to be. We see in verse 2 that the natives are unusually kind. We see in verse 7 that the leading citizen is likewise very kind. We see that in verse 11, this this island happens to provide a way of escape by having another Alexandrian ship almost in waiting for them. We see that they are honored in verse 10 in many ways, and they are departing with all that is necessary in verse 10. Friends, notice, they do truly escape. They land in a sweet spot, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean that could not have been better for their journey. How many of you took the time to search Google Maps for Malta? Don't do it now in the pews. I don't want to see cell phones in the sermon. But do it this afternoon if you haven't done it already. Plug Malta into Google Maps. There are two things you will immediately see. One, it's right off the coast of Italy. I mean, you couldn't pick a better port for hanging out for a winter if you want to end up in Italy in the spring. It's a perfect spot. That's why there's an Alexandrian ship wintering there for three months. It's a really good spot to be. But what is more, if you look to the southwest of Malta, all you see is blue till you get to Africa. Not only is it in close proximity to the Roman destination to which Paul intends to go, it is the last dot on the map before you find a watery grave in the middle of nowhere. Jesus knows how to hit a bullseye. Jesus knows how to land in just the right spot. Can you imagine two weeks of a rudderless, sailless ship being buffeted by a hurricane all over the ocean, and where do they land? Malta, the island right next to Italy. The last island you could possibly hit before you disappear into the Mediterranean Sea forever. Does Jesus know what he's doing or not? He uses a hurricane to drop them off at just the right place. But notice that just the right place includes penniless, jobless, just wearing soaking wet clothes. 
All earthly ambition gone. All hopes and dreams gone. My friends, this is the way Jesus works often in our sufferings and in our sorrows. He does not mean to enrich us with all the earthly goods we can carry into the grave. He does not mean to prosper us endlessly with all these futile and shortly lived ambitions. Indeed, he means for something greater, far more sacred, far more wonderful, far more soul-satisfying. He means for us to learn who we truly are. But this discovery of the true identity of a Christian is found so often only in the shadow of the cross and under the weight of its wood and the piercing of its splinters. He said to us, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and come. He does not mean for the road to be smooth. He does not mean for the life to be without its pain and grief and sorrow, but he does mean all things to work together for good. This stormy sea that destroyed every earthly hope they had left them in a really good place. How many times have believers testified to that reality? He robbed me of everything. And I found everything. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of our Savior. He saves through suffering. He strips us of all of our idolatrous dreams and ambitions. He leaves us panting and gasping for breath on the beach. Soaked and fearful and empty. And then he comes along and says, now, let me fill you up. Come, let me comfort you. Notice his first comfort beginning in verse 2. The natives show unusual kindness. They kindle a fire and make them all welcome. There's a cold, miserable rain falling down on the beach, such as we often experience here in New England. It's gray. It's miserable. Everybody is sitting inside their hut with a cup of tea and a book. And they're all wrapped up in their little blankets, enjoying the solitude And they hear the thunderish crack. They hear the creak and the groan of the boards. They hear the men screaming. And what do all these bundled up, warm, lovely tea sipping Maltese people do? They cast off their comforts and they run out into the rain. And they begin pulling people from the wreckage. And they drag them onto the shore. They build them a fire. They take out their teacups and their blankets. They wrap them up and bundle them up. They show them unusual kindness. Paul himself is no futile victim. In verse 3, we find him not beneath a blanket, not gathered round the fire, sipping tea. Rather, Paul is gathering a bundle of sticks. He is helping the saviors, not sitting with the victims. He throws the sticks upon the fire, and a viper comes wiggling out and grabs him by the hand probably just looking for a quick escape from the flames. The viper is there dangling, and all the natives, all the Maltese people, look at this creature, his fangs protruding through his hand, his venom coursing into his veins. And as he wiggles his hand back and forth, and the snake is dangling there, they go, Ah, now we've solved this riddle. We understand who this man is. He is a murderer. 
Because the sea that sought to kill him failed. But justice has found him on the shore. The serpent has bit him. He who barely escaped the justice of the sea with his life has come now to the grave. Here by the serpent on the shore, he is a murderer. There are two things I want you to notice about this. First, do you see their faulty logic? They measure the man by the suffering he has experienced. They evaluate the quality of his character by the content of his sorrows. They say he is a murderer, a wicked and evil man deserving of death because he went from storm to serpent, from death to death this man proceeds, and so he is clearly a one to be condemned. This is not how we evaluate people, friends. This is a faulty logic. Lest we fall into the foolishness of Job's friends and begin evaluating our suffering brothers and sisters by their sinfulness. We must distance ourselves from such logic and recognize that there was no one more righteous than Christ and yet no one who suffered greater than he. We do not measure the love of God by the things we experience on earth. The providences you endure are not the metric by which you find out if his promises are sure. No, my friends. There is a God who loves, and he loves you into suffering and through suffering. Note their faulty logic. Your sorrows and tears are not a measure of your father's displeasure. They are not. But notice secondly, my friends, this faulty logic leads them to a right conclusion. They decide that someone who survives the rage of the sea only to fall prey to the venom of the serpent is clearly someone who is a murderer. And they are not wrong. Do you remember Acts chapter 8? Do you remember when Saul stood there holding the garments of the witnesses while they hurled stones to break the bones and bruise the flesh of Stephen till his blood ran in the streets? Saul is a murderer. Our sufferings are not a measure of our sin. Our sufferings are not a measure of God's love. But indeed, my friends, we are sinners. We are a condemned and ruined people. We are those, friends, who need salvation. Salvation from what we suffer, but salvation from the suffering we cause. Saul is this middle man needing to be saved from the sea, needing to be saved from the serpent, but still more, needing to be saved from who he is. He is a murderer who deserves to die. And my friends, we travel the same road. We need salvation. We need salvation from the stormy seas through which we pass. All these troubles and heartaches and griefs to which our flesh is heir to, as Shakespeare said. We need salvation from all these bites and poisons that fill and course our veins, 
All this corruption of the world that is ever within us and about us, we need a salvation from this. But even still, we need salvation from ourselves. We need salvation from the sinners we are. And so this faulty logic that comes to the right conclusion leaves them ignorant of the right answer. Because in verse 6, they notice Paul take that serpent, shake his hand lightly over the fire, and the serpent falls out. How many of you have been bit by a snake? Am I the only one? I grew up on a farm. I was wearing those big black rubber boots that we use in the barn. I was wearing them because I thought they looked like cool warrior boots. And as I was trucking out across the field one day, I felt something funny in the back of my boot. And there was a brown snake whose fangs had gone whoop, right into the back of my boot, missing my leg by the width of my pants. I shook that boot off my foot as far as I could kick it and went screaming in circles until I could calm down. The snake didn't come out of the boot. Its fangs were in there. And I don't know how long it took to get its head out of that boot. The fangs that come into the hand don't just fall out. And yet, somehow Paul just kind of wiggles his hand over the fire and out comes the snake. Out it comes. In the meantime, they think, well, it's not instantaneous. You know, the blood's got to pass up the hand. I mean, Paul's probably right-handed, so I keep doing my left hand because I'm left-handed. Paul probably got it in this hand because he's right-handed. It's got to travel all the way up the arm to the heart. You know, it's, it takes a little while. But no, Paul goes and sits down, gets a beverage, talks with his friends, starts laughing and telling jokes, gives people hugs, and they say, you know what? He's not a murderer. He's a god. This is an extraordinary conclusion. The man who was a murderer ten minutes before is now a god. But this fickleness, this swing from one conclusion to the other, rests on this faulty logic. That we can take the measure of the man from the things he has suffered. We know his value by the things he has endured. Or we know his divinity by his ability to triumph over them. This would make our modern mind proud. Absolutely. I am the rugged individualist. I am invictus. I can overcome all that I face and suffer in sorrow. But this is not so. Paul is neither murderer nor God in this moment. He is a murderer who has been pardoned by Christ. He is one in service to a God, to Christ. But nevertheless, my friends, notice that this faulty logic that makes them a fickle people swinging back and forth, not sure who is in front of them, leaves them with this right conclusion. There is something dreadfully wrong with this man. And there is something dreadfully right. What is it? How can he simultaneously be so wicked as to suffer these things? And yet simultaneously be so wonderful as to survive them? What could bring all this pain and all this triumph together? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we wretched sinners? Yes, every one of us. 
But are we beloved by the Most High God? Are we cherished by Him in whom we have put our faith? Does He not delight in us even when the days are dark? Beloved, this is the truth to which we must turn. The truth that must serve, if you'll pardon the metaphor, as an anchor when the boat is sinking. The truth that is an anchor not down, but according to the book of Hebrews, up. An anchor that goes into the heavens. An anchor that holds us fast, not to the bottom of the sea, but to the highest glory, to the throne room of God. I am a sinner saved by grace. And my sufferings do not change that fact, nor my triumphs. How do we rightly weather with the same cheer and laughter that Paul here exhibits? The storms and shipwrecks of life. We find not God's favor in what we experience or feel, but in this truth which we believe. I am a sinner saved by grace. If this is the bedrock fact of our identity, then let the storms and shipwrecks come. It's going to be okay. Jesus saves through suffering. Having come then to this brilliant moment, Luke turns our attention to one who oversees this island paradise, a man named Publius. This is almost certainly not his name and not what he was called. Publius is from the Latin meaning public person, meaning boss. He's the unofficial guy who's in charge of the island. Because on an island paradise like this, you probably don't need much in the way of bureaucracy or government. He just happens to be the biggest landowner with the biggest amount of money, with the nicest palace. He's a Roman, and he is there to entertain and to receive, which is what he does. For three days, he entertains them courteously. This warm welcome works its way up from the natives to those who are at the very top. But while they are there, Paul stumbles upon Publius's father, who is sick with fever and with dysentery, which to us are words that are confusing and misleading, and we're not sure what they mean, because we think of fever and dysentery as something that needs sleep and hydration. But in their society, this is fatal, because they don't know that you need sleep and hydration. And Paul goes in to this man in a fatal condition and performs four remarkable acts on his behalf. One, he visits him. Two, he prays for him. Three, he lays hands on him. And four, he heals him. Notice once again, like Jesus, the intimacy and affection with which Paul engages the diseased. He visits him in person. He places his hands on him. He prays for him. We are swift to say we don't heal and to distance ourselves from this miraculous performance that seems limited to the apostles. But let us not tie ourselves in theological knots over the last verb when we've got three great verbs to work with in the beginning. Maybe we can't heal people miraculously, but you know what? We can visit them, pray for them, and put our hands on them. And that's a good start, don't you think? The apostle Paul is so entirely centered in this gospel of Jesus Christ 
that he neither loses his head on the beach when all the world is falling about, part about him, nor does he lose his head when he is in these palaces of the rich and the powerful. There are these two ends of the spectrum of human existence, where sometimes we're sitting around the campfire on the beach, soaking wet and despairing of life itself. And sometimes we're sitting in some pretty nice digs, surrounded by some really wealthy, powerful people. And both situations can go to the head and the heart. Both situations lead us astray and make us forget the truth and the reality that should be grounding us. We are sinners saved by Jesus. Our sufferings do not define our identity. And neither does our prosperity. Neither does our success. How do we remain, as Paul said, able to go with or without and not be shaken? The answer is we know the one to whom we pray. We know the one who walks with us, who loves us, such that all the rest of the island should come, bring their diseases, and be healed. They bring also their honor in verse 10. This is a word that means money. They bring money. They bring the ability to survive. And when they depart, they provide such things as necessary. Notice in verse 11, this is a three-month process. For three months, for the whole winter, for one season, they remain at Malta living on the kindness of the Maltese people. They pay their rent. They feed them. They bring them many honors, sufficient income that all these persons, homeless, penniless, shipwrecked, should be able to survive on this island. And what do they exchange? What can Paul and company give to these people who are giving them three months free income? Can you imagine this? Three months of free living. What does Paul and company provide in exchange? They visit them. They pray for them. They put their hands on them. Do you not realize that our society is desperate for friendship, is desperate for fellowship. It is so easy, and I testify as a pastor, it is so easy to think little of prayer. How many times have you heard an awful situation to which you responded, well, all we can do is pray? All we can do? Oh, my friends, let us remember it is the best thing we can do. Let us remember that it is prayer, as the Puritans would say, that moves the arm of omnipotence. It is prayer that brings us into fellowship with God. It is prayer that unites us to His holy heart, lifts up our gaze from all the sufferings and successes in front of us, and teaches us what is really true about this world. There is a God in heaven, and He is good. He is saving us through our sorrows saving us through our successes. For three months, this is the fair market exchange. How would you like to hold this out to the capitalists? Here is the fair market exchange. We will feed you, house you, clothe you, provide every earthly thing. And what will you provide in exchange? A hug, a handshake, a prayer. Who's getting the better end of the deal, my friends? Who's getting the better end of the deal? This is what we must grasp. 
as we drown in this world of abundant wealth, as we drown in this world of giant houses, as we drown in this world of consumerism, when we satisfy all of the longings of our soul with fleshly comforts, we must come back to this fact. You cannot buy what prayer alone will give. You cannot acquire what fellowship with God alone can feed and satisfy. Here are the truths emerging from our story. We have a Jesus who if you do not have him, the sufferings of this life are unbearable. We have a Jesus who if you do not have him, the success of this life is unbearable. It is Jesus who emerges at the center of our story. Let me show that to you with our final verses. After three months of sorrow and suffering and success on the island of Malta, three months of recognizing that it is friendship and fellowship with God that is central and supreme, they discover an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers. This little data point is historically important. It allows Luke to locate for his audience the facts of the matter. It is also important for two reasons. The ship that sunk off the coast of Malta was an Alexandrian grain ship. This is Jesus' sense of humor. I sunk your ship. But right here is the exact same one. See, I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. Secondly, its figurehead on the front is the twin brothers. This becomes important as the text moves on. It had wintered in the island. But then they move on to Syracuse where they stay for three days. Notice three months to three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. After one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren, and were invited to stay there seven days. And so we went toward Rome. Luke is simply recounting, on the one hand, the historical progression of the Apostle Paul and his friends. A couple days here, a couple days there. A couple days here, a couple days there. He is also noting the remarkable kindness of Christ to make smooth this part of the journey. Do you remember before the storm? All those many months ago that we looked at it. The first part of this journey went smoothly and swiftly, just like this one. And now the last part of the journey goes smoothly and swiftly, so that they arrive in Rome in good condition, on an Alexandrian ship, just like they had started out from. There is a circle to this. An ellipsis to close the narrative, just as we saw in the book of Job, where Job begins righteous and prosperous. He is bereft of everything, left with nothing. And then at the end, he is restored to twice as much as before. The Apostle Paul's journey in like manner begins smoothly and swiftly sailing along on an Alexandrian ship. It ends with him sailing smoothly along on an Alexandrian ship. With one significant difference. Burdened in these verses, buried in each of the lines, the ship is named the twin brothers. When they arrive on the coast, there are brothers who say, stay with us seven days. And when they journey up from the coast to Rome, the brethren come out of Rome to receive Paul at the Appi Forum in the three inns and to process, I'm using that word on purpose, back into Rome. What is Luke telling us? 
Luke is telling us that there is a fellowship that we have here on earth that draws together the disparate pieces of our shattered lives, that allows us to forge together some coherent sense of what Jesus is doing in this world. Let me put it this way. We were not meant to be philosophers in isolation. Thank you. We are meant to think together, to feel together. There is a brotherhood embedded in the identity of this ship. There is a brotherhood discovered in the coastal city of Puteoli. There is a brotherhood that comes out of Rome to receive him and to march on with him. And notice the place that they choose to meet him in verse 15. The Appy Forum and the Three Inns. Why is that so significant? All you who have mastered your Roman geography. This little detail that the Holy Spirit gave for us that makes us go, what is this for? My friends, it is where the Roman triumphal entry started. It is where the cities went out of Rome and gathered with the armies of Rome and marched triumphantly with them back into Rome. This is Paul's triumphal entry. And all the brotherhood is turned out to celebrate with him. Isn't the vision extraordinary? Jesus knows how to bear us through the stormy seas. He knows how to settle us into safe little islands along the way. He knows how to carry us up in the fellowship of the saints till at last we trade these earthly traveling partners for the heavenly host that awaits. We not only advance from strength to strength, we advance from fellowship to fellowship. We go from this valley of tears to the heavenly heights of joys and cheers, and we do so in the company of one another. There is a brotherhood for the depths of the sea. There is a brotherhood for the island of Malta, and there is a brotherhood for the road home. There is a bond of love given to the church that Christ should carry us safely home. And we see this final vision in verse 15. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When he saw those brothers in Rome, that final destination, that dream at last fulfilled, that ambition to which he had set his heart, that promise that God had given him in Christ when he was imprisoned years before in Caesarea, the promise had come true. But notice, friends, it doesn't say... When Paul saw the Colosseum, he thanked God and took courage. It doesn't say when he saw the Roman Forum, he thanked God and took courage. Where is Paul when he thanks God and takes courage? He's outside Rome, surrounded by the Roman brothers. My friends, the application of this vision of our life is not that our hope awaits the day we pass through the gates of glory. Our hope awakens today when we recognize that this assembly does not consist merely of the saints you see, but of all the saints who have gone before in glory. We have a homecoming, and it begins today.
We have a homecoming and the celebration has started. We thank God and we take courage every time we enter into the earthly fellowship that is but a reflection of the heavenly fellowship that is to come. My friends, what do you do today? What is this hour? What do you think our address is right now? 53 Antrim's on the building. It's actually not. It's, it's on the map. But my friends, this is heaven. This is the edge of glory in which we can awaken gratitude and courage by entering into that fellowship of heavenly hosts and begin that heavenly worship and be strengthened for the storms ahead. For we're not home yet. My friends, we are not home yet. But every time we come here, we get to remember what home is. We get to see it, taste it. I wonder, what are you doing this week? Are you thanking God and taking courage? Will you spend time this week awakening gratitude and hope? Remembering as you surround yourself with those who love the God above, that we indeed have a great hope. One of my favorite moments in all of literature in the English language is when Bilbo arrives at the Great Havens. Not in the movie, because Peter Jackson, as is no surprise to any of you, got it wrong. Bilbo is actually on a horse when he arrives at the Grey Havens. And he's fast asleep. And when he arrives at the Grey Havens, they stop and the elves begin to talk with the hobbits. And Bilbo snaps awake, looks around and says, oh, hello, Frodo. Are you ready? I am. Beloved, we have a life of sorrow and suffering that is preparing us for the glory that is to come. Let us thank God and take courage. Let us awaken hope and strength. Our Jesus saves through suffering. Let us trust Him, follow Him, give Him thanks. Do not be afraid. Jesus saves through suffering. Do not be afraid. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that the things we taste in this life are preparing us for the glorious feast above. That all the sufferings are stripping us of our love of this world and inflaming us with a love for the world that this world will be. We give you thanks, O God, that you are tearing from us the idols of our heart that you are bringing down the sins of our soul. We pray, Father, that you would awaken in our hearts and in our minds a heavenly vision, a hope-filled faith that looks to Jesus and so is not shaken, that believes that if all the world should be removed, we have a rock on which to stand, that if all the floods should arise, we have a rock that keeps us above its highest height. Our Father, fix our gaze on Jesus, that we should have a hope that ever lasts and brings us safely home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.